Well, I get the privilege today of introducing my son, Timothy Wallace, who's graciously agreed to fill in for us this Sunday. As, as you know, Pastor Andy uh, was sick this week with, with COVID, and uh, he did say in Sunday school this morning that he is feeling better than he has all week, so we are thankful for that. Um, Timothy is our middle child of five. As a child, he was our easiest going child, but he outgrew that. <laughs> he has in many ways become our most passionate child, but it's a passion for the gospel and a passion for Jesus Christ, and I am privileged to be his dad and proud. Um, he's passionate for missions. He has spent, I think if we add it all up, close to about three years of his life in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, a lot of that with caravan ministries there, um, providing housing and missions training, housing for the impoverished of Tijuana and missions training for various church groups that come down. He spent uh, close to a year of his life at Radius International, uh, learning about language acquisition and international missions there in, in Tijuana. And he is, um, he's also done short-term missions trips to Mongolia, um, Tanzania, and China. Did I miss any? Okay. And in China, that one's particularly interesting to me. He spent, uh, I think it was about three weeks, backpacking in rural China in areas that had probably, most people had never seen a Caucasian before, and, and using that to hopefully create opportunities to, to bring the gospel. So, as you can tell, I'm a pretty proud dad. So, Timothy, come bring the word to us. at Radius financially and through prayer, and I've really appreciated that. Um, it is of great encouragement to me, and so, of course, I'm thankful that Andy uh, invited me to come and share God's Word with you. Um, our passage today will be John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Um, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit. The reason I picked this passage is I've been reading through 1 John over the course of the month. And so when I was asked and found out on Wednesday that I would be preaching, I was like, oh, where do I go? Well, I'm going to go somewhere where I've been reading and dwelling on God's Word. And so I'm just going to catch us up what's been going on in 1 John to this point. John has just spent the last two chapters of this letter encouraging the believers so that his joy and theirs would be made complete, so that they wouldn't sin. He wants to protect the believers from false teaching. And finally, he writes, so that the believers would know that they have eternal life. This was very needed for the believers that John was writing to, because they didn't, uh, some people were telling them, false, the false teachers were telling them lies, that one, they didn't know enough to be saved, that they needed more knowledge, um, that either they could just keep living like they had been before they, would say they were saved and they would be fine because their salvation was just spiritual. It didn't have anything to do with the physical body. And then he also is addressing the lie that they needed to be, some false teachers were claiming they needed to be perfect. They needed to attain to some level of per perfection. Um, and then there were some false teachers that were saying, Jesus never came. 
that he was a myth. And so John wants the believers to be confident about who God is and that Jesus came so they can rejoice and live with hope. We also have this confidence and we can rejoice because of the testimony of the Bible and of the church and the love that God has demonstrated in Christ to us. This means we can live with hope because we see and know what John saw and knew. Let us read what John saw and knew, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as He is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Would you pray with me for a second? God, we are so thankful for your word. God, I pray that it would not be me standing here in my pride sharing your message, that God, your spirit through your word would be bringing a message of confidence and hope that we have in you because of the love you have for us and the work of Christ. God, I pray that you would let me speak clearly, truthfully, that you would keep my lips from error, that you would encourage everyone listening to the full um, inheritance that they have and to the hope that we have and we long for one day. In Jesus' name, amen. We kind of see here, right from the get-go, John is wanting us to see and know something very specific. He wants us to see and know who our Father is. He wants the believers to be confident who their Father is, that their Father is God. And he uses a very specific way to describe this. Um, Some of your translations may say, a certain amount of love. Um, The ESV says here, what kind of love? The literal translation of that phrase is love from another country or love from another world. John wants us to see that this love God has for us that distinguishes us, that sets us apart as his children is foreign to us in some ways. 
Because it is in God's very character. It's in his very nature. John has been drawing from all of Scripture to build this wonderful understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and what God is accomplishing in the world. He has established that faith in Christ isn't just something that started right then and now for the believers, but that it traces all the way back to Genesis. At the very start of the book, he he talks about how we have fellowship with God through Jesus. That he's connecting right there that Jesus was with God in the beginning. That he was with the light. Um, This is significant because what it's telling us is that the love that God has for us goes back to even his personhood. The fact that he is the triune God. That the love that he is displaying towards us is part of himself. The love of the God for his only begotten son. John doesn't say that this is the love of a father for his children. Well, the way a father loves his children is a reflection of the way God loves us. It is completely unequal to the task of capturing all the facets of God's love for us. In fact, all John can say is that this love was foreign to us in some ways will not be fully understood until we see God, as he says later on, when he appears and we know. Part of the thing we need to look at and understand here is what is a father? Who is a father? If we don't understand fatherhood, we're going to miss some very important details about what John is driving at. Bill Mauser notes that God is not anthropomorphic, but rather creation. We are theomorphic. We are describing something about God. So, father isn't a description of us. It's not a description of my relationship with my father. It's a description of God's relationship with us. That's one of the important things people get wrong when they start to attack the biblical language of God's description of himself as father, as son, is that these are the terms that God is using to describe himself. And it's even something they get wrong when they start to use that language to change who they are. Because the fact that I am a man, the fact that you may be a father or you may be a mother, is actually something that's supposed to reflect us back towards God. As we read in uh, Isaiah 64, 8 earlier, Scripture confesses that the Lord is our Father. It says, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are the work of your hands. The confessions and doctrines and creeds that we hold also declare God's fathership. Uh, The Nicene Creed says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Baptist faith and message also says, God is Father in truth to those who become children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And he is fatherly in his attitude towards all men. One of the important things when discussing the doctrine of the Trinity is this idea of divine simplicity. 
And what that simply means is that God is not a combination of parts. He is not something that's put together. That is why we use the term when we say God is love. God is holy. God is just. And that's why we can also say God is Father. Because He is the truest essence of all those things. And it's not that when we put them all together, we suddenly have God. It's that He is those things. Our scriptures, creeds, and confession, and, all, and John all identify God as Father. So we see primarily that Father is describing something of God. John, at the start of his gospel and this book, directly connect all the way back to Genesis. Because part of our problem, and part of the problem that he is identifying here, is that in Genesis, in chapter 3, something happens with our relationship with the Father. That fellowship that he describes in the start of this book as wanting to make complete with the Father by sharing this good news, we know it's broken in Genesis 3. We know that before that point, God had fellowship with man, a perfect fellowship. But that when sin entered the world, that that fellowship with God was broken. And even more beyond that, that we, in fact, became children of Satan, of the devil. And so what John wants us to see here is that when you are the child of someone, you are a reflection of that person. The way we could describe it is um, you may know through the simple description that I am Trevor and Carolyn's son. But if you were to study my mannerisms, my characteristics, the way I act, the way I behave, you would probably start to draw out, oh, oh, they have that in common. Oh, they have that in common. And you would start to draw all those little connections and those things. And the interesting thing, though, is even if we go beyond that, if we go down to the very deepest level, if we get a DNA test and we study it, it's going to come back even further and more clear that I am their son. So that's fundamentally what's at stake here is John wants us to understand that if this is the love that God has displayed towards us, we are the children of God. This is part of the reason why the world does not know who God is, as he says in um, the second half of verse 1. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him, right? Um, Someone could come in here, and they might know me, and they might say, they're not your parents. Here's all the reasons why they're not their parents. They don't know them, though. They don't know my parents. It's the same thing is true with God. The world is going to look at us, and you know what? Fundamentally, they want to believe that they know who God is. Because in Romans, Paul describes this idea that they created God in their own image. That they created God in their own likeness. That instead of looking to the God of Scripture, they started to fashion an, an image in the likeness of humans or of the creation of the world. People in the world have their own idea of who God is. And that's one of the things that gets really confused is people sit here and they're like, you guys aren't of God. If you were, you would show us love. You would approve of the things we approve. 
Because their fundamental breakdown is that they do not know who God really is. It's really important today for us to understand fatherhood and motherhood. I work um, part-time in a um, shelter for men. And one of the primary things that I work with these guys on is a biblical understanding of what manhood is. A biblical starting point for manhood and womanhood. That is, we are imaging God. That's one of the important things of being a son. Is that you're actually representation, you're an extension of your father. That's one of the significant reasons that you take the last name of your father in our culture. Because I'm extending the work of my family. I'm a representation of the ongoing work of my family. That's what John even wants us to realize here, that um, in verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right? And that even though he has, the fullness of that has, yet, has not yet appeared, when we do appear, we will know that we're like him. Um, what's going on there is, even though we do not fully understand the completeness of God, who He is in every way, who Christ is in every way, that when we go and be with Him, when He returns, that we're going to already be like Him. That's the work of sanctification that's going on in us right now. God is purifying us. That's, um, if we look at verse 3, it says, Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. When we're placing our hope not in our own work, not in our own efforts, but in the efforts and the work of God, that's when transformation starts happening in our lives. If you're starting to do it in your own strength, in your own might, um, that is not going to result in anything because ultimately you're hoping that your own works are going to save you. When the testimony of Scripture is that we are loved and saved not through our own, own works, but through the works of our Father, who is God. And this is an important thing, too, when we talk about those of you in the room who are our fathers, and even, I would say, those men in the room who aren't fathers. One of the important things fathers do is they teach their children how to um, become men. No one is born a father, right? Everyone grows into a fathership. No one starts out as a man. Everyone grows into a man. And if we go back to Proverbs, one of the important things we learn is that parents, even fathers, teach this very important thing of teaching their children to fear the Lord. Teaching their children to fear the Lord. That's one of the reasons we need to know that God is our Father. Do we fear Him? Do we fear His righteous and just wrath? If we do, if we do fear Him, we will understand that there's nothing we can do in our own might. And we'll throw and cast all our hope. That's why he emphasizes hope here in verse 3. We'll cast all of our hope on him and not in our own strength and our own reason. Part of our breakdown, I would argue, in our world today is we don't have fathers or parents who teach their children to fear the Lord. It's one of the struggles you can look through all of Genesis. You can see man after man after man arise up and he doesn't fear the Lord. One of the constant testimonies of, uh, we look at the kings in the Old Testament, is 
uh, it says he did not fear the Lord. He was a wicked king and he did not fear the Lord. And then we can see all the brokenness that results of, in that. Because the fact of the matter is if you don't have an understanding of who God is, that what's going to happen, your actions are going to actually end up being self-centered and um, dwell on yourself and you're not going to care about the consequences. This is also why the world hates godly motherhood. Because when a woman fears the Lord, they preserve and give life. You can think of, say, the midwives who defied Pharaoh, or Rahab protecting the spies, or Esther preserving the whole nation of Israel, so that through Israel, God might bring the seed that saves the world. These women feared the Lord instead of the world, and by their actions, they were saved, and they saved many. If we read in John chapter 8, 42 through 40, uh, yeah, 42 through 44, John writes in that book of his gospel, If God were your father, this is Jesus speaking, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For you did not come, for I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. John definitely is reflecting somewhat back on his gospel. He sees the significance of the Jews' rejection of Jesus, and he connects that to even our rejection, that the world rejects us because they don't know who our father is. They will claim, just like the Jews, the world will claim they are doing what's best. And in some sense, they, are, they have their image of God, utopia, whatever that is. And that whatever they're doing, whatever they're trying to accomplish, is going to bring about um, perfection, is going to please God. But the fact of the matter is, because they don't know who God is, they cannot please God. And in fact, they are doing works counter to who God is. Um, we can see, you know, if we go back uh, again to Paul in Romans, that they're replacing God with idols made in their own image. And we know this is a result of the fallen nature, that they reject God because they don't know Him, and in their nature they're incapable of knowing who God is. They don't reject us, uh, they, they, sorry, they reject us because they don't believe in God. This is one of the important reasons why we need to be born again. Right as he goes on to, to continue to make this argument, is before we're sons of the devil. And if you are sons of the devil, you've got to actually go through a new birth. You've got to become new again. John leaves us with some details in the second half of how do we know that our father, because that, that's the struggle, right? Is if we can either be sons of the devil or sons of God, how do we know which one is our father? He's just given us confidence 
right? That this is the work of God, that God loved us in a way that we would be as a children and we'd act and abide in this way, but he also wants to give the believers confidence that they can know by the way they behave. Because people are telling them right now, because you're not behaving this way, or you're doing these things, or you're not doing these things, that you're really not saved. So what gives us confidence of God's work in us? How do we know our Father? You do the deeds of your Father. And he gives us three questions. Do you make a practice of sinning? Do you make a practice of righteousness? And do you love your brother? We see in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. False teachers have been telling the believers to whom John is writing that they can do whatever they want. Because the law is no more, because Christ came and abolished the law, they can live and do whatever they want. The law has no hold over them now. That they are God's children. And they can do what they want. This is what we call antinomianism. It's the rejection that there is a moral standard for the believer or for society and culture. The argument goes something like this. Because we're spiritual beings and we've been saved, God doesn't care what we do with our bodies. This is very similar, I would say, to the moral relativism that we find in, our, find in ourselves today in this culture. Where not only Christians, but non-Christians feel no need to call themselves or hold one another to some objective standard of righteousness that we would find in Scripture. And I think on the opposite side, when you overreact from antinomianism, and for many years in America, we practice probably what you would call legalism, which could be defined as an excessive adherence to the law, where we would act as if keeping the law would provide us some level of righteousness or salvation um, that we would attain to something in our own works. John is rejecting both of these extremes that we're being taught those believers that he's writing to. He is saying that you cannot be a child of God and keep on sinning because that's contrary to your nature. It's contrary to your new birth. He shows that sin and, law and the law are connected. That we don't just get to do away with the law now that we're in Christ. That Christ has actually come to abolish and to put to an end not just law but sin. And so we can't go on persisting in sin because then we're not actually abiding in Christ. Because Christ is free from sin. If we look at verse 5, we see a continuation of that. We know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Again, he is driving home that emphasis that in Christ... There is no sin. And that Christ is actually taking away sin. So then he says in verse 6, No one who, who abides in him keeps on sinning. And the one who keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. That's the question. Not do you sin. Because he, he early in the book makes clear, it's anyone who says they don't have any sin, they're a liar and the truth's not in him. But what he is saying here is that for those that make a practice out of it, if their life is characterized by sin, if their life is characterized by breaking the Ten Commandments, by saying there is no moral law, no moral code I need to hold to, or because Christ has saved me, um, 
I can do whatever I want and I can depend upon that. That He's saying, no, Christ has no part of sin. No part of it. And the one who abides in Christ and keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. Right? Because that's the significant thing. If you are abiding in Christ, if we go back, you kind of have to have that image in your mind of when he is uh, describing what Jesus is talking about, the vine and the vine dresser, when he says, uh, when Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he who abides in the vine bears much fruit. Right? If you are abiding in Christ, you're not bearing these works of the devil. You're not bearing out sin. Your fruit is righteousness. Your fruit is not sin. And that brings us to the second question that he's asking is, do you make a practice of righteousness? Again, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Right? There are false teachers that are trying to deceive them. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That is, as Christ is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. If we think back again, just like John is, thinking back to Genesis, the very first thing Satan does, he shows up and he tells a lie. The very first act, the very first practice of Satan is a lie. Right? That is a work of Satan. And we know based on this and other passages that this is what characterizes Satan. Is acting contrary to God. Denying God. Trying to oppose God at every turn. And this is also the significant aspect of he says in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Listen, not only has Christ come to destroy the works of the devil in our own lives, but in every person that doesn't believe and does not repent in God, they will face the righteous punishment and wrath of God, and their works will be undone as well. There is no work in Satan. There is nothing you can do in Satan that's going to last. I tell the guys at ReCenter that I work with all the time, I'm like, hey, look, you've got two choices. You can believe what I, what I say. You can believe in it. And you may not even put your hope and trust in God. And the fact of the matter is, even if you order your life in this way and it's profitable and it works out for you, your works are going to be nothing. Because you're going to be ultimately doing them for yourself. You're ultimately going to be doing them, as this passage says, for Satan. Not for God. And all of those things are going to be wiped away. That's the significance of the new creation, of the new heavens and the new earth. And we know that Christ will return to bring that about. So instead, I encourage them, look, you must trust in Christ. If you want to see anything that lasts in this life, there's anything worthwhile lasting. Our works must be the works of righteousness. This is, again, in verse 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Right? This, this goes back to this idea that it isn't us. We've got to not make that mistake. It isn't us. God's seed. He's referring all the way back to Genesis, right? To the seed that would come and crush the head of the serpent. To Jesus. 
is abiding in us. For God's seed abides in us. Right? We can't keep on sinning. When Christ is abiding in us, when we're trusting in that, when we're hoping in that, and not hoping in our own strength and our own might, the beautiful thing is that our lives start to follow that order, start to pattern after God. We're not obtaining holiness and righteousness through our actions and through our deeds. We're depending fully on the righteousness and actions of Christ. And that's why we can't keep sinning, because we've been born of God. Finally, in verse 10, he asks this question, or he makes this statement. By this it is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? John is concluding, this is the conclusion of his first argument of this letter. It's two sections. This is the conclusion of the first. In the first part of this letter, he's focused on the fact that God is light and inside of him is no darkness. Now that we have reached this point, it is clear that he isn't just talking about physical light and darkness. He's talking about natures. That someone who's born of God, someone whose nature is a child of God, cannot have any part with the devil. They can't be children of the devil. You can only have one father. And that children were made to carry on their parents' work. This is one of the significant things of being a child. You don't exist in a vacuum. I have parents. I have grandparents. I have great-great-grandparents. And a good child heeds and listens to the instruction of their parents. Why? Because this is a reflection of our relationship with God. When we heed and listen to God, his promise is that it will go well with us. John 5, 19 through 22 says, Truly, Jesus says this, Truly, I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does those things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these, and you will be amazed. Our works are evidence. They're evidence that we are children of God. And let me be clear, if your works are more characterized that you are doing the work of the devil, lying, stealing, cheating, adultery, this is John's warning right here. This is why he ends with the stern warning, anyone who does not love his brother, any, whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, going back to Genesis, the first person to not love his brother is Cain. He doesn't love his brother Abel. We know that Abel's sacrifice was righteous and it was pleasing to God. It was pleasing not because there was something good or inherent about Cain, I mean about Abel. It was pleasing to God because Abel was trying to do the work of God the Father. Cain hated that. Cain despised that because he was actually doing the works of Satan. We can see this as it goes to be on to be illustrated because when it comes to after he's killed his brother and he has kids, he names, he, he establishes a city and he names it after his son. 
He doesn't have a relationship with God. His focus is on his relationship with his son. Versus if we look at Adam. Adam could very well lose hope. My son's been killed by my other son. But instead he continues in the works of his father, of God, and he has Seth. And he teaches Seth to be fruitful and multiply in following what the command, the commission that God gave him, and teaching Seth to call on the name of the Lord, to look to God. It's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. This is the reality of sonship, of having a father. If God is your father, you will practice righteousness. This is one of the significant things about Christ. He was not the son of God because he practiced righteousness. He was the son of God and he was righteous because he is God. Do, do we get that? That's the beautiful thing about Christ is Christ was righteous. That's why he did the things that he did. He didn't do the things that he did. He wasn't in relationship with the Father to gain more holiness or to gain more stature with the Father. Right? In a sense that he was obtaining some more holiness or some more righteousness. It was that he was. And now, this is the beautiful thing about the gospel is that righteousness is imparted to us. We don't have to do things to gain favor with God, not to become more holy, not to become more pure. We have been born again. We have that nature. That's what Peter means when he writes in 2 Peter 1.3, and he says, God's divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And continuing on in verse 4, he says, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine, divine nature. Do you see this otherly world Love, this love that's foreign, that we have no imagination, cannot comprehend on this earth. It isn't that God made a way for salvation and gave us works and things to do that someday, possibly, through struggle, we might at some point become holy and God might let you into heaven. No, it's that in his mercy and love for me and you, he made us sons and daughters through the death of Christ. We became new creations with new natures. We are pure, so we pursue purity. We are our sons of God and not the devil anymore, so we pursue the works of God. That's what enables us to pursue things like the Great Commission. And Christ destroyed the works of Satan in us totally and forever. And there is coming a time when Christ and his Perfect holiness, perfect perfection is going to be revealed. And when that time comes, we are going to realize that we are not, we're nothing. We're not sons of the devil. We're going to see very clearly that DNA level, that test, all these ways that we can't even fathom right now, that we are his, God's sons. Brothers and sisters, fix your hope on Christ in which you are beloved children who are born again. Rejoice that God has shown you such love that one day you will be with him and know him in ways that we can't even comprehend. If you have not been born of Christ, you are a child of Satan. You are doing the works of Satan and they will be destroyed and nothing will be left. My call to you is to fear the Lord, know your place before him, and cry out with the prophet Isaiah, 
who when he knew his place before the Lord, said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. When you realize that your works are not just neutral, that they're opposed to God, that they've been the works of Satan, that they are acts performed against God, and that he will not leave them standing, that he will not even leave you standing, let that undoing, let that realization bring about the destruction of the works of Satan in your life rather than the final judgment. The practice of sin, of lawlessness. Repent and believe upon the Lord and he who is love calls people everywhere to repent and believe. And that's the testimony of John in chapter 5 of his gospel. He says everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, sorry, of this letter, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of Him. By this we know that we are loved, the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes on Jesus as the Son of God? See and know God your Father by having faith in Jesus as the Son of God and that you too would be his Son. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so thankful that we are no longer sons of Satan, but through your great and extraordinary love, Love from another world, you have brought us in as children, that you have transformed us into the image of your Son. We anxiously long and look forward to that time when, God, we will sin no more, when sin will be no more in this world, that everything in this world will be overcome, that the the works and the deeds and the pain and the suffering of this world will be undone by the work of Christ upon the cross. God, we thank you for doing that in our own lives. Help us fix our hope on that so that we may be pure and seek purity as Christ is pure, so that we may be holy, so that we may love our brothers, so that we may dwell and have fellowship with you and that our joy may be made complete. In Jesus' name, amen.